0: copywriters come from all sorts of backgrounds some of us started out as bloggers some of us were teachers and others started their own businesses and discovered the power of copywriting as they worked to make those businesses successful our guest for the 231st episode of the copywriter club podcast is sarah bartanian who did all three of those things before finding success as a copywriter. She shared her story, plus a lot of thoughts on launching, list building, and podcasting in this interview.
1: We'll get right into our interview with Sarah in a moment. But first, this podcast episode is brought to you by TCC Not In Real Life. That's our event for copywriters and other smart marketers who want to learn from experts, I feel like we're repeating ourselves week to week, but people like Joanna Weeb, Carleen Anglad cole Todd Brown, Jerisha Hawk, Joel Kletke, Aman Ismail, and more than a dozen others. It's happening this April 7th through 9th. That's uh, 2021 if you're listening to this later on. Uh, and we're approaching the end of March, so it is time to get your tickets if you don't already have your tickets. And... As we've said a few times before, TCC NIRL is not about uh, just presentations in a Zoom room. We are working on all kinds of activities to help copywriters connect with each other. Things like a murder mystery, a scavenger hunt with prizes, a mixology lesson, and much more. And now that we've said this, Kara, we got to deliver on some of this stuff uh, at the event. So
0: I'll tell you, I'll tell you who uh, committed the murder. It was, it was me.
1: Exactly. So if you want to hang out with some amazing copywriters, learn from the experts in the business and just have a good time, make sure that you get your ticket. Uh, Visit thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCC dash one. If you don't remember that link, if you're out for a walk or you're out driving, you can find the link in the show notes of this episode on the Copywriter Club website.
0: Now let's jump into our conversation with Sarah.
2: I started actually as a teacher, and when I was on maternity leave with my second son, I just started, I started to start a business, which was an online cloth diaper shop, because I was uh, cloth diapering my son, and right away, I actually learned how copywriting could make me sales, and I did this totally by accident. It was because I had joined this Facebook group of other online cloth diaper realtors, and I asked them for advice on how I could like, get started or what they would tell themselves. And they told me overwhelmingly not to do this work, basically, that like, there's so much competition and don't even bother, and that would be their best advice to me. But I didn't really want to accept that. So I put on my teacher hat and I read the internet and really researched and listen to what people were wanting to learn about cloth library and the questions they were asking. And I used all that information that I learned and I wrote about it on my website. I had blog posts answering those specific questions I talked about it in social media and quite quickly that was bringing me in sales. So I was um, really quickly making sales through that business getting called in to uh, write in some magazines, to speak at events, and things like that. So that was like my first experience with how copywriting is so powerful. And then from there, I went on to start this Green Living blog and was working with a bunch of, let's say, like Green Living companies and green beauty companies on campaigns for them, writing some of their social media. And I got hooked up with this really cool ed tech client who was looking for someone to help with their social media, um, who was a teacher, which was me. So I started working with them and they eventually got acquired by this really large educational company and they brought me along with them. And so they were my client for a few years and with them I became their writer for everything. I wrote uh, websites, in-app copy, um, all their email marketing campaigns, sales presentations, And that was where I really learned what copywriting was about um, and all the different ways it could be used in business. Um, And so from there, I started taking on other clients for social media and for writing their newsletters. And then all of these clients were eventually starting to launch their own offers. So I began to write for them too. And during this time, I had been on leave from teaching for a couple of years, but decided to continue that leave as my business grew until eventually just about a year and a half ago where I officially retired from teaching um, and decided that I would not be going back and just sort of would go all full in on my copywriting career. So that's how I ended up where I am today.
1: I love it. So let's go all the way back to that first business, the cloth diaper business. What were you selling?
2: I was selling cloth diapers.
1: Okay. So (laughs) yeah, so you like were you also having them manufactured? like setting that up seems problematic or challenging, so what did you do to build that business?
2: Um, well, I think first of all, I definitely did it. wired on like late nights with a baby, and just thought it'd be a great idea. Um, okay. So I went into it knowing nothing. I ended up wholesaling um products from people who were manufacturing, so nothing I didn't create anything from start. so it was like a shop.
1: okay. Okay. So that makes sense. And then that led to like speaking gigs as well. I I mean, so I, I, this is probably going to speak to the power of a niche, but there are, there are, there are speaking gigs about cloth diapering.
2: Totally. I was invited to speak at, um, a bunch of events in Toronto where I, I, live, um, at some, there's like, we have green living shows here and sort of like child and baby expos and things like that. Um, you know, where all those, parents want to go buy things and meet with people before they have babies. So I was invited to speak at those events. And then there was a magazine, it's called eco parent magazine. It's a Canadian um, green magazine. So I ended up working with them um, at their events. They did. And, um, you know, even wrote it in their magazine as well.
1: Okay. So I, I mean, I should have known that, that, you know, it was more like green, um, you know, eco living or whatever, but yeah, that just totally like confirms Knowing a niche, working in a niche presents all kinds of opportunities that you would never see when you're outside of a niche.
2: Absolutely.
0: Before we move on from cloth diapers, can we can you just share some of the most common misconceptions about using cloth diapers with your babies?
2: Ooh, yeah. I think that it's been a while since anyone asked me that one. Um, <laughs> I would say that it is um, hard to use because so many of them are actually um one-piece diapers I think people think that they're all like folding these like cloths and with pins and probably like they're really like what we would have seen maybe in like the 50s and while that does still exist and you could use those they totally have these like really cute fluffy beautiful printed like one-piece diapers um so that's one and then I think the other thing is that they're hard to clean um and they're really not (laughs) like you just uh if, you know, you just rinse them off and you wash them separately from everything else, obviously.
0: <laughs> okay. Are you selling them? Can I get some? Where can <laughs> I buy? I want your cloth diapers.
2: <laughs> I am not selling them, but I can definitely point you in the right direction. Okay.
0: All right. We'll chat later. Um, so let's talk about teaching and how long were you teaching?
2: Yeah, I taught for um ten years altogether everything from grade one through grade six and I was also a teacher librarian.
0: Okay, cool. So what was your favorite grade to teach?
2: Hmm, I have two. I can't well no, I have to choose three. <laughs> like I like teaching a lot. I liked um I loved grade one because we got I got to teach them to read. Like kids came in, um, you know, from kindergarten from lots of play based and I got to teach them how to read and write, which is pretty amazing to watch happen from September till June. And then grade three, I just loved because they were still young, um, but like so, and, and so like sweet and curious, but still like to play, but then also could read. So we could do a lot more. And then I loved grade six because we could talk about so many social issues. And it was really interesting to watch um, kids like really navigating their way through the news and what was happening in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um. So, what have you pulled from your ten years as a teacher and teaching um, different grades? What are some of the key lessons that we could use as copywriters, especially any copywriters who have moved into more of a teaching, you know, group program course space, which so many copywriters are are moving in that direction? How can we be better teachers? How can we create better curriculums? Um, what should we be thinking about if we're interested in moving into that space?
2: Yeah, well, I think first is to find out what people already know so that you can see their baseline. So, you know, in teaching, we'll often, um, like, if you're going to follow like sort of a, a teaching pl- framework, whatever for any lesson you're doing, you always want to find out what their prior knowledge is. So that could be, you know, just asking that question. Um, you know, we often take do intake forms as copywriters. So maybe in your program you're doing intake forms to find out what what's going on and what, or it's just doing research and having interviews. But what do you what do they already know so you can see what you need to teach them? Because sometimes we are missing, we're like a little bit off by ten or fifteen percent, um, and then we're actually not giving people what they need, or we sort of left out something that they think is important. Um, the other one would be to just give people enough information to get them started, but don't give them too much so it's overwhelming and they don't take action then. I think um, in courses and, 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 you know, in teaching, I often see people who don't come a teaching background almost give too much sometimes um, because they, there's, they think that there's, like, value in volume. And um, that's actually quite opposite, right? Because people then don't know where to start. So you have to give them this framework, like, you know, just enough to get started and to pique curiosity and you let them feel like they're able to take that action. And then you want to give them opportunities to try it for themselves um, and be available to talk or support or help them through it.
1: So, yeah, as I'm thinking about what you're saying here, obviously, you know, when you're talking about courses, uh, that seems to make a lot of sense. But what about selling other kinds of solutions? So, you know, maybe uh, software or medical instruments or, you know, things like that. How do you introduce like just enough information so that you're not, overselling or overteaching, boring or overcomplicating the process? Is there, uh, this is maybe an impossible question to, uh, to answer, um, but is there like some formula or just like some walls that we can um, build around this idea to make it easier to navigate as we're thinking about how, how do we write copy for those kinds of audiences?
2: Yeah, I think about really, again, going back to what do they already know? So finding really, again, setting that really baseline so you find out what is it that they need to be taught to move forward one or two steps from where they are. Um, and then with that, with anything you're creating, you know, be it templates or apps or whatever, we're, you know, we're selling, is how do you create support tutorials around those things, but in like micro-sized um Byte like yeah, in microbytes, basically, so that you're not giving them something like the sixty minute, let's say, tutorial, but maybe these little five minute ones, so they could watch and do as they're going. I don't know if that answers your question a little bit more.
1: Yeah, and as I'm thinking about it, I mean, especially with things like you know software, or equipment, or tools, or those kinds of things you don't necessarily need to give all of the information before the sale, right? You, I mean, you don't necessarily need to know how to use everything in a software package. You just need to know that it's going to solve X problem. And so I think a lot of the teaching role then happens in retention and teaching people how to use a product uh, in a way that keeps them engaged and moving forward. So um, maybe I've kind of answered my own question as I'm listening to you repeat some of that back.
2: Well, and I like that you bring that up too, because I think that's something... Um, that I see so often is that I think us us coffee writers, we know we spend a lot of time in that like beginning stage, that list building and then the um, selling stage, but not enough in that retention and helping people actually follow through with it stage. Um, Sometimes there's a drop off there and that's where we can apply those teaching things like you said, to help make sure that they're actually having success with it and then giving opportunities for them if they're getting stuck to help them. So whether that's your customer support or, you know, uh, monthly zoom call you have or whatever you do to help them actually talk it out so that they feel supported to do it themselves. Um, but also know that you're, you're there for them.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to jump forward then to this period of time when you were working for the client, but you started working for other clients as well. So you kind of had that full-time or part-time job. It seems like Kira and I've had a lot of conversations recently with people, you know, not necessarily on the podcast, but in some of our groups where people are either moving into some kind of a a role, either part-time or four-time, or they're moving out of that role. How did you navigate that? You know, as those people started coming to you, how did you balance your time? And what did that portion of your career look like as you were making that switch from one main client to many?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, so when that um, tech company got acquired, because we were all in Canada and they were in the U.S., part of what had to happen is I had to come on as a part-time employee as opposed to um, a contractor. Um, And so I was a little reluctant to do that because I did not want to be an employee. (laughs) Um, But it still worked pretty much the same, um, except, of course, as time went on, that role and that time kind of grew what they wanted from me. Um, so I worked with them f- about three days a week worth of work. And so I had those other two to work on my clients, but what was happening was I was working a ton, right? Because I was doing all like, let's say Monday to Friday and client work. And then anything on my business or any of that backend stuff or anything was all happening on like nights and weekends. So basically I was working all the time, <laughs> um, and was pretty exhausted. And so when I had, what I felt was enough of, um, other clients where I felt like I could cut back. I talked to that, um, the, you know, the ed tech company I was working with and asked if I could pull back to contractors, um, if there's something we could do. So we did figure that out. So I pulled back a little bit and they became again, an official client. Um, and then I did that for about another year, uh, but it was kind of burning me out to be honest with you. Um, because there was a lot of like, there was some travel involved and because I think I had been an employee for a little while, the boundaries kind of went gray there because we'd had me in that role. And then me as a contractor, it was hard to remember that I wasn't on staff anymore. Let's say for them in terms of coming to all the meetings and doing all the things I would have done before. Uh, so I decided to leave. Um, eventually it was hard to let go of because it was, you know, a nice steady retainer client. Um, but I, I had to trust that I would get more of my own clients to fill up that gap, which I did because I feel like every time, um, I don't know if you guys have the experience too, but every time I create space and let go of something, something else comes in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, and I probably need to create some space now for something new to come in. Um, but so I'm wondering, Sarah, when you went out on your own officially, timeline-wise, was this three years ago, two years ago?
2: I have been on my own officially, oh my gosh, I guess. Um, I left teaching five years ago. So I have been working in business in some way or other full-time for five years um, and then left that ed tech client just like two and a half years ago.
0: Okay, two and a half years ago. So... I want to hear more about kind of what helped you grow in your own business, but you did mention boundaries. And so do you have advice about um, how to create better boundaries for copywriters? Because that's something so many of us struggle with, whether it's with that previous employer, you know, where the, they still think that we're on the team, but we're really a contractor or it's with our own clients where it's just, we really struggle with those boundaries. What have you learned and what have you done
2: that's worked well? Every time I have a client, I'm learning something new about boundaries, I would say first. (laughs) Um, I think that one of the best things I have learned is to set out expectations around the relationship right when we get started. And I even do that um, as early as a sales call, like talking about how we'll work together and what that will look like. I mention it in the proposal, what it will look like. And then um, it's even built into the contract. So in terms of like when I'm available for them and when they can expect to hear from me. And I make myself follow through on that because it can be really easy to answer an email on a Saturday night if it's just quick on my phone. Um, but I don't let myself do it. I will maybe answer it, but I schedule it. I use a scheduler for email. So it will go out on you know Mondays when I do email. So um, I think just setting out those expectations and forcing myself to follow through on them would be the biggest one for me.
1: Sarah, as I heard you tell your story about you know, how clients just started contacting you and reaching out to you, I can imagine a lot of people listening are thinking, wait a second, Like, how does that happen? I want clients to reach out and contact me too. So what were you doing to put yourself out in front of the right clients so that they were naturally thinking, I need to work with Sarah in order to get whatever this thing is that I need written done?
2: Well, I think One of the first things that I did was uh, a few years ago is I joined this um, mom entrepreneur Facebook group. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be really a Facebook group. The Facebook group was part of it, but it was a community kind of like the copywriter underground, but for mom entrepreneurs. Uh, So which which one is it It's called Mamas and Co. Okay. And uh, I joined that. I had a bunch of, you know, biz friends who were in it were saying it was amazing Uh, that people were hiring each other. It was a great place to be. So I I think it was a few hundred dollars, which kind of felt like a lot of the time to invest in because I wasn't really sure what it was about. So I joined it and right there, um, I got a lot of my first clients through that group. So I think since then, that actually has been part of my strategy for finding clients is to join uh, paid Facebook groups or let's say communities and just a couple of them and just put my, a lot of my efforts into building relationships and connections through those groups.
1: So let's talk more about like what that involves. Uh, you know, did you have an offer? Were you just solving problems? Like what, when you say you put your efforts into developing relationships, uh, what does it take to actually build a relationship that then ends up in somebody hiring you to do work?
2: Yeah, a couple things. So first I definitely had a lead magnet that I shared. So when there were opportunities to share your thing in the group, I shared my lead magnet. And at the time my lead magnet was actually kind of an unconventional lead magnet. It was one where you could give me your, you know, your website URL and I would give you back a mini, mini social media marketing um, roadmap. And so that was individualized for everybody. And I had committed to doing that for the first 50 people who signed up. And so it was a lot of work. <laughs> like, I think I did. It took me about an hour for the first ten or so that I did. Until I realized that every, you know, it was pretty similar the problems that were occurring. So I was able to cut down on how long it took me. But when I was giving people back these, uh, like their marketing roadmap, and this has started in this mamas and co group I was in, they were really excited, and I would say impressed. I got testimonials from it. They started referring me to friends. And, um, a bunch of them ended up hiring me and stuck with stuck with me for like three or four years from my iteration, from like social media marketing, right through launch copywriting. So that was where I got started with that. And then in terms of like how else building relationships, I would be like commenting on people's posts. Um, if they had a question, something I could help them with, sometimes I'd send them like a little loom video, like showing them a tutorial of something because a lot of people are getting stuck on the tech. Um, and while I don't do tech for people anymore. I used to do that's part of my offerings, um, just because it was sort of the whole solution, like I'll schedule your your social media um, for you, or I'll do, you know, all the emails, I would schedule them as well. So I might send them like a little Loom video showing them where they are stuck on if I could help them, just take a few minutes, or sometimes just respond back to it through a Loom video, because I think there was like a personal connection from that. Um, And also for myself too, hiring people from the group. So not just looking to be hired, but also hiring them and supporting them in any way I could.
0: So would you recommend this individualized lead magnet uh, where you're customizing the information? Uh, Is that something that you think could work for other copywriters today who are just getting started uh, building their list and building trust and building those relationships?
2: Definitely. I think it's a fantastic way to build those relationships and connections. And also as a copywriter, for you to figure out what people are asking for, like, what is going on? What questions do they have on their mind? Because when you give them that personal insight, and when you can, they also give you permission to, let's say, look at whatever problem that you're offering to solve, or give, you know, some advice on, you're going to learn so much, and it's going to help you tweak your own offerings to support them. And then, of course, you can take all that knowledge and wrap it up into an automated lead magnet that does not take, you know, all your one-to-one time.
1: So as you went through the process, then you start attracting these clients to you. What did your business look like at that point and how has it changed since?
2: I was doing social media marketing uh, for them, so writing their social media captions and also writing newsletters. And I was not charging a lot when I look back at it now. I think I was charging like $500 for almost um, a post every single day of the week let's say, on social media and a newsletter. Wow. Um,
1: I want to yeah. hire you to do my social media.
2: <laughs> well, I would say like within a year, that rate had doubled. And then by the time I left, it was I was more like a 1500 or 2000 for some of that type of rate. So my uh, baseline had changed a lot. But a lot of my clients had stuck with me through that. But more significantly, what probably changed as well was the time I spent. So I might have been, I also was charging more, but I was I was doing less. Um, realizing what was actually needed and maybe what I needed and what was working on social media. And I also had gotten a VA to support me with some of the stuff that I did not have to do, um, such as scheduling all of the posts for people or scheduling their emails that I wrote and things like that. Um, And then also as the time had gone on, I realized that I was having a lot more fun. And what I really enjoyed was the launching as opposed to the social media part of it. I found the social media part much more draining um, and I really liked the launching because it was connected to sales really specifically, but also helping people get their like big ideas out into the world. Because most of the people I was working with were service-based businesses who really want to take that one-to-one offer and put a group offer out there. So I found it really exciting to be with them through that transition. And
0: Sarah, can you share what your business looks like today? So what, how you get paid in your business today?
2: I get paid by doing launch copywriting and strategy. Um, So there's a a few ways people work with me. So I have, um, I don't have a fancy name for it yet. That's in the works this year, hopefully. Um, But basically like a full launch strategy. So people will hire me to do everything from their messaging research to their list building, uh, their sales page, and then the uh, open cart sales sequence. And then afterwards, even the customer success emails. So that's like my full launch package. And I tend to have a few people doing that at once. Um, and those are five-figure packages and, um, and up. So starting at 10K and up. And then I also work with people for, it used to be a half-day session, but now it's just like a couple hours. So they'll come in for a couple hours and we'll either optimize their sales page together live, or we'll talk strategy for their launch. We'll help them actually map out um, a funnel for them to do themselves. And then I also have a membership, which I just started in the summer. And in the membership, it's all about launching. So every month, I drop a new training around launching and a copy template. And then we have weekly copy calls where they can come and then bring those, the copy that they're working on that I've given them this framework for, uh, to review, to talk strategy. And then I also brought someone in to answer their tech calls biweekly, because I know that tech... Holds a lot of people up who are doing it by themselves um, during the launch. It really is like a roadblock for them.
1: Tech is the, one of the things that holds us up when when we're doing even not launching things, just even regular things. So me too. <laughs> yeah. As as I listen to you talk about this I, again, you know, thinking about people who might be listening, I, I'm sure that there are some people who are thinking, okay, this is exactly what I want to do in my business. So mm-hmm. if you knew somebody who's just starting out, or maybe they've been writing for a year or two, but they really haven't figured out how to break into sort of this launch copywriting space. What would you suggest that they should be doing in order to start taking on launch projects or taking on larger projects to be able to do the same kind of work that you do?
2: I think, first of all, going in on launch copywriting like deciding to go all in on a niche. I know we talked about that earlier with the whole cloth paper thing, right? Going in on one area and focusing. I find that once I have decided to go all in and launch copywriting those are the clients who come to me first of all people aren't asking me anymore for writing their newsletters or for doing their social media copy because that's not what I offer Um, so first I think deciding to go in and then I think it really helps to have some kind of framework that you're following that you can speak about because then you know when you're answering questions let's say in Facebook groups or you're writing a blog or you're on podcasts wherever wherever you are finding your clients or looking to find clients, you can talk about your specific process for launching and why your process is a process that they might want to work with you on or buy into.
1: Yes. To build the trust in in the fact that you know what you're doing. Okay. So one of the most important parts of launching is building a list, obviously hard to launch without a list can be done, I suppose, but much easier if you've got a, a highly engaged list. Can we talk a little bit about list building and for you know copywriters who may want to launch their own products someday, what should we be doing to build our lists? Are there tips and tricks that we can do to do it faster, to do it better, to make sure that, you know, the people who join our list are actually engaged and want to talk to us? Like just spill all of the list building secrets.
2: Okay, for sure. So, first I think it's having an opportunity to actually have people sign up for your list. I don't know how many times I've seen that like I go to someone's website or even on their Instagram, wherever they're speaking, that there's n- there's no direct or obvious way to sign up for the list. Um, so, you know, make it obvious and make it happen. Like so put it on your Instagram, build specific landing pages, um, provide those opportunities, constantly send people there. So if you have opportunities to speak on podcast or in, in you know in groups or share things in Facebook groups, send people to this landing page and even more if you are speaking to specific audiences, you might want to consider creating special landing pages just for those groups. Um, that's something that I often do. Um, and it's not like I'm not creating something brand new. I will just like duplicate the page and call the special URL and send them there. But it helps me to know who's signing up and who's engaged, but also makes that group feel kind of special because you've created something just for them. Um, as well, I've already mentioned I like to do things a little bit differently. So if you are in the beginning stages of growing that list, considering giving people a chance to access your knowledge through some of that um, one-to-one feedback. So, you know, maybe let them send you their sales page to look at. I know that um, someone in the think tank, Annie, was, was doing this, and I sent her one of my pages, and she gave me some really great feedback on the sales page I was stuck on. You know, it's hard to see as a copywriter, even our own stuff, sometimes we need to get other eyes on it. So it was so amazing. And I made those changes and it made a huge difference. Um, So can think about ways to get in front of people and to show what you're really good at and what that taste of things would be like. Um, Also, though, for lead magnets and list building, are you offering something that people actually want? So I think that is um, one reason why we don't get a lot of people signing up for stuff. Have you figured out or done that research to know that what you're putting out there is what people are coming to you for or what they're looking for? Um, So I would do that research to make sure that's what it is. Uh, Those would be my main things for list building tips.
0: I was going to ask you if there's anything that you have seen copywriters do specifically with their own list where we're kind of missing the mark or messing up. I mean, You mentioned that make sure your lead magnet is something people actually want, but is there anything else that we should pay more attention to? I think actually
2: having um, a welcome sequence that helps people to use the thing that you have created. So whatever your lead magnet is, oftentimes um, I'll see people you know, and, and copywriters and, and others too in business, but they'll, you'll sign up for it, but there'll be, there'll be no mention of it again of it again and like how you can, use it and why it was important and why it might help you. So having people first have success or build momentum with the thing they signed up for, I think is really key because when they see that what you're showing them, like or what you're giving them is useful and how what you're teaching them or giving them can actually help them, you know, achieve whatever result they were looking for. So if it's more sales because you did X from this lead magnet, you want them to have that win. So, spending time in that welcome sequence, getting them to actually use it before then jumping right in. Then, then you can jump into like your story and why you, or how you got started and, you know, making an offer. That's what I would say is sort of a missing component. I notice a lot.
1: So I want to come back to this welcome sequence, the specifics there, but before I do that, what do you think about using, um, you know, intrusive things like pop-ups or pop-ups with exit intent? Would you recommend or not recommend something like that for growing your list?
2: I think pop-ups are great as long as they're not like smashing you in the face when you first get on someone's website. So if they're, you know, coming up a little bit later, like you're saying, when you're going to exit, um, or, you know, on a time delay, I think that they're okay. As long as they're, um, as long as it's really clear that you can close it and you're conscious of the fact of maybe not hitting someone with it every time they're on your page. So putting like a time delay on it, how long it shows up, um, But really more importantly, not making it like when I go to your website, I don't want to be hit with that first. I want to actually see your website.
1: Let's break in here to talk a bit more about what Sarah was sharing. I think starting with this idea of unconventional lead magnets. So Kira, I really like this idea that Sarah shared about providing something that's so amazing people can't say no to, but it's really hard to scale long term. And I I think I really like this for copywriters who are starting out? Because at that stage of your business, you've got more time than you have clients. And so why not trade that time for something that gets you noticed?
0: Yeah. I always like something that you can do that um, is hard to scale and that the majority of the people out there will not do. And your your competitors right will not do it because it's hard. It takes too much time. Um, it's just not easy. And I think that lead magnet example that Sarah shared is such a great example of that. It's unscalable. At a certain point you really can't do it anymore. And you know, I don't think she does it any longer now that she's grown, but it served a purpose early on and allowed her to attract new clients and to stand out in a crowded marketplace. So whether it's an unconventional lead magnet um, that's customized and time intensive or something else that we've talked about like sending videos to people or to prospects or to potential customers for a new product you're selling. Um, All those uh, things like that are great and personalized and they go a long way when you can do it.
1: Yeah. And like you said, it really makes you stand out from everybody else out there, you know, whether it's because of the time that's involved or, you know, whatever the extra thing that you're adding, but doing these things that don't scale it does get you noticed early on, it does get you attention, and assuming that you deliver on the promises and everything else that you're doing is part of your business, it is a really good way to connect with those first few customers who can then refer their friends and contacts to you as your business starts to grow. What else stood out to you from what Sarah was talking about?
0: Well, I really like that she talked about um, how she shares her process and her framework when she markets her business, when she jumps into Facebook groups, um and networks it's easy and we've talked about how communities facebook groups are still a great way to land clients and to show up but what sarah has done uh, to stand out is to share her own unique process and that's something that we can all do and take time to figure out what our process is how we do it a little bit differently from everybody else Give it a name, create a framework, and um, and when you're talking uh, to people and sharing solutions with them or answering their questions in Facebook groups, you can share like and here's you know here's how I do it. Here's the framework I use to solve that problem, and that also separates you from. Everyone else who isn't sharing their framework and the process, because we we know processes, when prospects hear about your process, they already feel confident in you because it's clear that you have a system that you follow. They're not just winging it. You're not just following your intuition and that you've done this repeatedly. So it, it gives that confidence that we often need to land a client.
1: Yeah. And I also noticed that Sarah was really clear. It wasn't just any Facebook group. She joined paid Facebook groups, you know, where she was paying, it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of money, but she was paying, you know, $200 a year or, you know, some kind of small investment. And I think that that actually has a pretty profound impact on the people who are in a group, people who pay for something, pay attention. And so being in a group where you've got this small investment, you're in there with other people who have made an investment, but they're paying attention, they're, they're investing in their business and the people that you will connect with in a group like that, as opposed to a free group, uh, is just going to be another caliber higher. And, you know, that's a lesson for all of us, uh, not just as copywriters who want to connect with potential clients to join paid groups in our niches and industries, but also, you know, we should be looking for opportunities where we can jump in, maybe pay a little bit of money, but be in these higher, these groups with higher engagement and, you know, with better information and uh, just, it's a a different experience fundamentally than than you get in a paid group.
0: Well, and that's also why in our, our paid group that we host, the Copywriter Underground, that's where you and I share all of our best projects and leads uh, with fellow members because we know, we know they're there, they're active, they're investing in their own business, they're investing in their own skills, they're highly engaged. So we know if we post a job in there, most likely uh, the person interested in the job will be in great hands. Um, so that's another example of just the advantage of being in those paid groups.
1: Exactly. So one other thing that really stood out to me was uh, when Sarah was talking at the beginning of the interview about teaching, and she didn't say it this specifically, but you know we were basically talking about teaching as a sales te- technique. You know, sharing what you know in order to grow your authority, to get out in front of the right people. But you're, you're basically teaching. And because that makes you, you know, more trustworthy, it shows that you're a professional, that you know what you're talking about, it actually tends to attract sales. And I think uh, a lot of us don't necessarily think of that as a sales technique or a way to you know, attract customers to our uh, offers, to the things that we want to do. And I think it might be worth you know, giving a little bit more thought to that uh, in our own businesses.
0: Right. And especially for the two of us, I and mean, we've learned this the hard way. I think we're still learning this lesson around um, which uh, Sarah shared, giving people enough info to get started, but don't overwhelm them. And that goes for content in a course or uh, any type of curriculum, but also, like you said, for sales. I mean, we have battled with this in our own webinars that we put together where you and I want to kind of cram as much learning and information in a webinar as possible, or even in an event as possible. That's why we have our, our retreats are jammed with content and presentations. Um, but often, you know, it's true. what She shared just like keeping it simple, just give enough for people to take action and not, and don't overwhelm them. And I think Mike Kim, who we interviewed on episode 200 is such a great example of that too. Simplification. Um, Just giving people enough to move forward and eliminating the overwhelm that people like me tend to run into as multipliers who just want to add more.
1: Yeah, we definitely should not run away from our roles as teachers, but you're right. It's very easy to give too much or uh, to overwhelm people that we're talking to because we get excited about the stuff that we know.
0: Right. And you want to provide value. And I think that's something that most people who do give too much information, whether it's on a sales call, you're talking to a prospect and you want to tell them everything, or it's in a webinar, or it's in any type of product you're creating. It usually comes from a good place of wanting to please the other person and make sure it's really valuable, but it's just a good note for all of us to make sure it's simple and not overwhelming. All right, let's go back to our interview with Sarah and talk a bit more about list building and welcome sequences.
1: So let's go back to the welcome sequence then. Uh, if I remember right, you've got a pretty solid process for like what each step of the email sequence needs to do or accomplish. Will you walk us through that and just help us, you know, as we're warming people up onto our list, as we're you know, starting to get them used to reading our emails, what should each message be doing?
2: Yeah, okay, so the first email I like to send is, I call it the like, OMG, you get me email. Um, and that is where you basically like, Love on them for making the decision to sign up for your lead magnet and talking about why um, this has been a good decision for them, like what it's going to help them with. So really kind of reiterating that transformation result that they're going to get um, and telling them to like, okay, now go download it. So just really focusing on the ask to like go get that. Then the next email, um, I call it the shift of belief and get momentum email. And that's where we start. I want people to start thinking about, how whatever you have given them is going to help them sort of change your perspective. Like what do they sort of need to shift in their perspective in order to get success with your lead magnet, whatever you've given them. So talking about that and then reminding them that they can achieve that, but just like go download the lead magnet and actually use it and try it. And then the next email sometimes depends on the, the person writing it. And if it's necessary, I would do a segmenting email where you try to figure out if your audience, like what they're here for. So you can learn, um, you you know, you can shift them into things that they actually need. Um, You know, specifically, I'm just thinking of a client I'm working with right now who is a nutritionist and works with people who have like, you know, she's got the zero to one audience and then the toddler audience. So we have like shifted people into those two audiences. Um, But for copywriters, that could be, you know, maybe you have course creators or you have people who are service-based businesses. Um, I know that's how I segment mine. So there's an opportunity there to segment. Um, At the next email, I like to talk about some kind of uh, social proof, basically. So like kind of like the future, like what you can, what's coming for you, what you can have, what's possible. So I think I call the show is what's possible email. So it could be like a story, testimonials. It could be a video. Any way you want to show how your lead magnet and the thing that you were teaching in there um, actually helps people. And how they can have that result too. And then again, like, you know, go use it. And then from there, I generally like to make some kind of offer. It's not necessarily paid. Uh, it, you know, so it's linked to whatever the end offer that I actually want them to get to is. So it could be, you know, heading over to a free webinar, um, joining a Facebook group, or it could be buying even like a small micro offer. or getting on a sales call.
0: Sarah, I know you started your podcast. Um, I don't know, maybe, was it six months ago? How long ago? Yeah, how about that. Yeah. Okay. Your podcast all about launching and you've interviewed experts, um, on the topic. So can you just share kind of like what, uh, maybe are some of the top takeaways from the interviews you've conducted from your own experience in the launch space, working with clients, as far as like, what is working today, um, this year in 2021 with launching, what's not working, what's changed?
2: Yeah. The number one thing that has come up in almost every single interview I've had is managing your own energy in a launch and having a launch that doesn't like just like drain you and destroy you basically. Cause I know that can happen in launches, right? We can get really burnt out. Um, and I think that's come up because so many people, you know, we're trying to do, maybe we're trying to do all the things by ourselves or we're trying to replicate those like Amazing, you know, Amy Porterfield launches that we see that have like all the bells and whistles and look fantastic, but we don't have the team that Amy Porterfield does, right? We're maybe ourselves or just one or two other, you know, contractors helping us. So how do we have a launch that can not burn us out and still can help us get the results? Um, and so that is like managing your energy, managing your time around it, setting realistic expectations for how long it takes to get things ready for a launch, but also what your launch results are going to look like. Because if you don't have the big Amy Porterfield type list, right, you're not going to get the same results as Amy Porterfield in terms of the financial output of a launch. So that has come up, I think, with like uh, three quarters of the interviews I've had about people talking about like how launching can be draining and how do we stop that. Um, and, And some of those results are getting support, for your to do your launch, um, rethinking what your goals actually are like in like kind of making some realistic goals. And then also maybe even choosing not to do launching like we've seen. So you know we often think of launching as a sort of like typical. Um, we have our list building and then we have our webinar, there's a webinar show up sequence. They go to the sales page and then we have our follow-up email sequence but maybe like breaking out of that formula and not that that doesn't work because it does, but recognizing there's many other ways to launch that doesn't have to follow that. So for you, like, you know, for some people it could be sending a few emails to your list. Um, For myself, actually, when I was launching my membership in the summer um, I didn't have the capacity at the time to do any kind of larger launch. So I sent a bunch of uh, bomb bomb videos which is an app that you can send right in your email um, video. So I sent a bunch of those to some people who I thought would be a great fit for my membership. And that was my launch. And I had a few follow-up emails and talked about it like a couple of times on Instagram. And that was it. So a launch doesn't always have to be all the bells and whistles. Um, And so maybe realizing too in your calendar throughout the year that you could make space for those larger launches, but also have some, let's say micro launches in between, which are maybe just through email, maybe it's just through Instagram, or wherever you bring people in, you just focus on that. That's what we've been talking about a lot um, in the launch space. And then one other thing that's come up too, is to be really, really, real in your launches. So when I talk about that, I think that the term like bro marketing has come up a lot or ethical marketing and copywriting. Um, and so I think people are more tuned into ever to what's real and how do we follow up on what we're actually promising. So what's come up has been making sure that your testimonials are, you know, accurate, that you're you're not having false scarcity. So like pretending that this course is closing or never going to open again when it's not Um, focusing on things like giving people payment plans, but maybe even not charging them more for that payment plan. Um, You know, just because they're choosing the payment plan, they shouldn't be penalized necessarily like financially just because they can't pay in full. Um, Those are a couple of things that have come up as well. And then not giving them, so much in your offer that people can't actually complete it. Like we want them to actually have success with whatever they're buying in this launch. So how do you focus on that value over volume so that people can achieve the results that you, we want them to have. So really reflecting back on offers, um, you know, that you're launching and making sure that you've pulled out anything that is really not necessary. That's really not going to help them achieve that goal. So those are the biggest takeaways I have right now.
0: Yeah, and as a follow up, you mentioned the energy levels. So you know, we're we're launching our accelerator program when we record this. We're almost done with the launch, and I'm pregnant, so my energy is very low. Um, so I'm really interested. Like, what would you recommend to someone, anyone who just wants to kind of manage their energy? Because I like how that sounds, but I also, I don't totally know what it means other than, yes, I should get sleep. But I also (laughs) know that I like, there's just stuff that needs to be done during a launch and then with everything else, it doesn't stop. So that's not always realistic. And what else, what else can be done so that it doesn't become something that's, that you dread or is um, not actually helping your business because it's just too overwhelming. So yeah, give me all your tips.
2: Yeah. So I think first, if possible, you know, the ideal situation is we block out time in our calendar, right? So that we don't actually have to do the other client work or things that are going on during a launch. That um, never so, works out. Yeah, <laughs> it never seems to work out, right? I know. For my own launch too. So that's the ideal, right? Like that's like our gold standard that we create space for ourselves. Um, doesn't happen that often. So if that's not going to happen, is there a way that you can bring in some support? So maybe you do your own writing, let's say as a copywriter, but you're going to have someone else manage all the tech for you. Um, and maybe not even depending on the person, like maybe they don't even talk to you about the tech, right? They just like deal with it. Like you tell them this needs to be done and they're going to go handle it and, and solve those issues. Um, and if, and from there, if not, that's not possible, then that's where I'd say pulling back and looking at your launch plan and saying like, do I really need to do all these things? Or do I just feel like I need to do all these things? Do I need to have 12 emails or could I see what happens if I do six instead? Like, do I actually have to follow this? I'm going to say I'm air quoting here, but like this whole, pl- you know, path or typical launch plan that we've all always done. Can we try something differently? So I think that's a big part of managing energy is like looking at what's going on in your life and saying, what what is possible with what I have, the time I have right now, um, and what other assets do I even have that I could reuse? Like we don't have to recreate um, our sales pages every time, right, or our email sequences every time. We can reuse them and hopefully. We, you know, as we create them, they create a foundation that we can build upon for each and every time we launch.
1: So, Sarah, I'm sure this has never happened to you, uh, but if it were, what would you say to a client whose expectations weren't met in a launch? You know, where the launch flops, or you know, things just haven't gone as well as they had hoped, or it didn't go as well as maybe a last launch. How do you manage those expectations?
2: It has happened. <laughs> like I don't believe it. To- Hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know. I, I, try to manage those expectations ahead of time. Um, and so actually I won't like, that's one of my criteria when I'm having my sales calls, I won't work with someone who doesn't have realistic expectations or won't get on board with realistic expectations of their launch. Like, so if someone comes to me with like 50 people on their list and they want a hundred K launch and they don't, you know, they don't have the social media numbers or anything to bring that in. Um, I can't, I won't work with them <laughs> that because I know we're not going to achieve it. Right, like at least we're not going to shoot up like the first launch. Um, so what I really try to do is manage expectations beforehand by talking about um, the importance of like traffic as one. Like, how are we getting people in, and what are they going to do? Like, so that they take ownership of that um, because that's that's their role in this, right? Like, I can do the copy, um, but their role is to bring people there. And then um, also really talking you're know, driving home the importance of listening before you even do any of your launch copy so if we don't know what people are asking for and if we don't have those like client interviews or have done that like reading the internet and like I call it like a listening tour like going everywhere and finding out what people are talking about in terms of whatever our offer is I feel like we don't we miss the mark in our launches and that's usually what happens so if people do have a flop and they haven't, it's often because they haven't done that research at a time. Um, you know, it's, it's the research or the traffic, generally speaking, because generally, if they've done the research, we've aligned the offer, and they know it's going to work. Um, so if they haven't, we'll say, okay, so like, now we need to go back and do that research. Or it could be stuff went on in their life, right? Like, stuff happens, right? They, they got sick, they didn't show up, they thought they were going to promote it, they ended up not actually sharing it on social media, they didn't write, to, they didn't, like, send out you know personal invites they didn't actually have that again that energy to show up in their launch and that was reflected in their numbers so we really talk about what what happened and try to look at it more like a scientist and not you know try not to take it so personally i know it can be hard obviously but like really look at like okay so what is the data telling us and what is that what can we do with that data
1: yeah, I actually like that approach, where like looking at the data and really looking at okay, what happened, what are the contributing factors to as why things didn't go as well as you know it might have. So I, I think that's a really smart approach. I also want to ask um, you twice. You've mentioned you know trying different things with your launch, and so you know I'm curious. Besides the four-video Jeff Walker-style launch or a webinar launch, what are some of the scrappy ways that people launch, and and some of the things maybe you've seen that people are doing differently when they launch that have sort of had a a, a pretty good impact?
2: Yeah. So, um, well, for myself, I mentioned the one just sending people emails, um, like video email. So personally inviting one. That's something I've done, I've, and some of my clients have done when we've just wanted to even. Um, sometimes for them, like call in some revenue so they can afford to invest in copywriting is, is even like advice that things we've talked about on like a pre-sales call or for past clients. Um, because that is one way, like that personal outreach to bring people in, right? You know that you've worked with them or, you know, they'd be a good fit or they've sort of been on your radar for a while or they've talked to you. So one, um, working your network, I guess is what it would be. Um, the other one I've. I've I've watched a few times happen would be using Instagram. If that is your, you know, your platform, but taking your sales page and actually having it broken down into um, Instagram stories. that's something I have like my VA has done for myself. And I know some of my clients have done this too. And I've I've watched other people do this in the space where they'll have it basically recreated through stories and you'll share um, your sales page through there, share your testimonials stories, do videos, and do like an Instagram launch, essentially. Again, your audience has to be there for that to work. Uh, and the other one that I want to try that I haven't yet, I saw. Um, but I did take the course, Hillary Wise did a course on hot seat beast, she called it. Um, and I know she launched, instead of doing a webinar, by doing hot seats. So having, because she was, you know, she was selling a, a group a coaching program. So having people come in and actually seeing what it's like to work with you um, in real time. And I think that's really interesting and something that I want to try, especially for my membership, because I know that um, I think what people love the most is the copy coaching. And so I think once they experience that, they're like, oh, my gosh, I need this all the time. So how can you put yourself out there or, or give people a taste of what it's like to experience working with you um, as your launch tool?
0: Yeah, I love I love those ideas of um breaking down your sales page and dripping it out on Instagram and and highlighting what you do best. If it's coaching, it's like getting into hot seats and showing what you can do. Um, really great suggestions. So I'd love to kind of just dig into areas that you've struggled in your business because we've shared a lot of what you've done well. You're clearly doing lots of things well. So what has been more of a struggle in your business over the last year or two?
2: Definitely it would be... Um burning out so like working too much for sure like knowing when to say this is enough and I think that um I think that's like a symptom of the fact that I left teaching where I had like um I don't know it's like in the U.S. but in Canada like they're pretty you know teachers are pretty well paid and pensioned and all those things so I felt a lot of pressure my own pressure from no one else, just myself, like having leaving teaching to replace that income and to make sure that I didn't make a mistake essentially. Um, So that meant sometimes always feeling like I was having to say yes to a project um, based on the client's timeline, not necessarily what my timeline was because I was wanting to make sure that I could always pay my bills essentially. So just being kind of concerned um, and being worried like what if something happened? Um, And so that has been something that has then led me to be, you know, working too much or tired. Um, that's, you know, one thing that's been chasing me, I would say the past few years and has sort of calmed down more recently, let's say in the past six months or so. Um, sometimes also like sustaining that productivity or like creativity. I think when I've learned, like when I overschedule myself, then it feels like everything I'm writing is the same, right? Like I'm bored by my own writing <laughs> and the things that I'm doing um, because I haven't created space to, um, to breathe or to rest. When I think in that rest is where we, you know, are creatively like fuels from, right. From whatever we're doing with our family, the things that we're reading, whatever our hobbies are, all that stuff fuels us for, for I think being better writers. And because we bring, you know, interesting things to the table, or we've seen, we, you know, we've read, some, we said, read something cool that we can actually then apply to our work, um, or even experience some life that we can, you know, write a newsletter to our, our, our people on our list. So I think, um, you know, just like that kind of burning out of that. And I think sometimes, until I joined, so, you know, I'm in the think tank with you and Rob. And um, I think until I joined that, it felt like I was in, like, I was in my own little, I know I'm good. I think you guys call the copy cave sometimes, but like, that's all I, all I could see was what I was doing in my own business. And I was having a lot of comparison itis, let's call it. Right. I was like looking at all these other copywriters, seeing what they were doing and thinking they must be doing it better than I am. And like, what are they like? Basically like they're so smart and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Essentially like, and really second guessing myself. So, um, and I don't struggle with that so much anymore, but it's still something that I have to keep in check is sometimes putting my own head. So, you know, not trying to compare myself to other people, but also realizing that um, we're all having our different struggles, but we, we all, we, you know, in myself, like we all can like learn from each other and we're all, we're all having things that we're really, you know, that we're good at. And we, you know, people also like look at me the same way I probably look at them, (laughs) I guess, is is realizing that.
1: Let me break in and and maybe ask you something specific about this, because I, I found it really interesting. You said that before you joined... The think tank you were you had this comparison itis you know where you're comparing yourself to other people's businesses when you're in the think tank or any other mastermind that's like the think tank you actually get the opportunity to compare your business to others but instead of seeing the outside you see some of behind the scenes you see you know what people are struggling with or you know what people come to hot seat calls with and so maybe i could just ask you know about like what what the difference is you know from comparing businesses on the outside to seeing on the inside and how that's impacted your mindset and how you approach your business.
2: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I think that when you're on the inside, you know, of the think tank and seeing other copywriters, you do see inside their business, you know, what's going on. But now I know that we're all, you know, we're, (laughs) we all have struggles and we all are, you know, there's things we're all really amazing at that we can support each other with. And there's things that we're all struggling with. Right. And we, those are all a little bit different for everybody. So I think realizing that, um, Not feeling alone in those struggles is is really helpful so that when I'm not, you know, looking at all these other copywriters, let's say out there who are not in the think tank and thinking, oh, they all have all their their stuff together, right? Um, It's all perfect. And if I just followed my business just like they did, I would have their exact exact same success. And really, that's actually not true. It's what we bring as an individual to our business, um, our unique way of looking at things that makes our business successful. Um, but it's also being backed, I think in the copyright and like in the think tank it's being backed by the support of people in there. So what I love about the think tank is that I have found that people don't hold back about sharing. So if there's something like I'm really curious about, or I want to learn that they're doing it, I think is amazing. I have felt people to be so forthcoming on like, and so willing to like open up the back of their business saying like, here, here's how you can do it. Like here's a template and, and getting on the phone with each other to support each other through that so that it's kind of like not all secretive feeling or not all seeming like I could never figure it out. It's, it's all available to support each other with.
0: So Sarah, what is next for you? What are you launching next or focused on next over the next few months?
2: Yeah. So I think this is my year of visibility. (laughs) So um, with that, you know, I'm really focused on getting out there and talking um, on podcasts and teaching in groups around launching. Um, So I'm aiming to do that. All year long, uh, a few times a month, I'm hoping for, and then also really focusing on the offers that I have going that are already working, and how can I refine them, and how do I can I do them actually in less time so that I can have a little more, um, you know, life in balance in my life. Um, so that would be really like you know bringing people into the the done for you full launch packages that I have. But also growing my membership, I'm, I want to have 100 people by the end of the year. So for me, you know, right now, I'm sitting at 15 people in the membership. So it's uh, you know, launching a couple times a year to bring people in to that um, and just really focusing on like what I already have going on as opposed to launching something new.
0: That's it for our interview with Sarah. But before we go, let's recap a couple more things Sarah shared Starting with this question, Rob, should everyone have a podcast?
1: So I think you and I differ on this. uh, And maybe we've answered this question before. I I can't remember as I was... I
0: feel like we talk about about this a lot.
1: Yeah, I actually don't think everybody should have a podcast. I do think, however, that everybody, uh, any copywriter who wants to connect with their audience should be appearing on podcasts. And the reason why I don't think everybody should have a podcast is because it is a lot of work. If you want a podcast, I'm not saying don't do it, but it's a lot of work uh, to maintain, to keep going and to make it worthwhile. And so, you know, just be aware of that. Uh, And it can take away from the other things that you're doing in your business because of the amount of time that it takes. But there's an opportunity for everybody to appear on podcasts. Uh, We obviously attract a lot of copywriters to our podcasts, but there are so many niche podcasts talking about all kinds of things. And they need marketing experts to jump in and help them with things like copywriting, things like marketing campaigns, things like funnels and all of the stuff that copywriters know about. But... Other business people, you know, if they know anything about it, it's pretty minor and they can really use the experience that a lot of copywriters can bring. So I do think copywriters should be appearing on podcasts all over the place, talking about the things that we do really well. But I don't necessarily think that everybody should have their own podcast. How about you?
0: I think everyone should have their own podcast if they can afford uh, to. Hire someone to help them with production because I I do agree with you. It's not easy. It takes a lot of effort and time to put a podcast together. And we don't all have that time, especially when you're just getting started and you just need to like grind it out, land clients, do the work, repeat. Uh, But as soon as you can dedicate that time or um, you know, land an extra project every month so you can afford a podcast editor or producer... To help you, then it's totally worth it. Um, And so to share your viewpoints, to interview people, to get in front of ideal clients, to build your confidence, to improve your public speaking, all those benefits, it's definitely a win. But I I do agree with you, Rob, that even if you don't have your podcast, yes, you can always guest on other podcasts. I'm always amazed at how podcasts I have not heard of, and I I get make a guest appearance on their podcast. I've never heard of the host Never really heard of the niche or audience and um, and they have their own community and they have listeners who are engaged and you can you can land so many different clients and new spaces uh, with people who've never heard of you before there's so many different bubbles in our podcasting world that you can tap into uh, by strategically pitching podcasts
1: yeah, I agree i I think the things that keep people from being on podcasts or starting their own. Are usually things like I don't like to hear my own voice, or I don't know what I would say, or I have nothing to teach, I have nothing to say, and I think those are the terrible excuses for it.
0: We don't um, like listening to our voices either. Exactly. I mean, Rob, maybe you do.
1: No, I hate, I hate it. I hate it. I yeah. When I listen to my laugh, I think, oh my gosh, that or whatever. I I just yeah. I I don't love listening back, but I do love the conversations that happen, and I love what I learn in talking to so many smart and and just. Awesome marketers and copywriters that we do, so it's it's worth it for that for that alone. But yeah, don't let those kinds of things keep you from being on podcasts or starting your own podcast. But if it's you know stuff like hey, you know I don't have the time, I don't have the resources right now, I'm you know fully engaged with all of my clients. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you can spend an hour a week, you know, making a pitch and appearing on a, on somebody else's podcast. But yeah, we oftentimes let the wrong things stop us.
0: Every time I hear myself laugh on our podcast, I feel like I sound. I sound like some, a witch, like it sounds ridiculous. There's nothing cute about laughter on a podcast. I have not heard someone have a great laugh on a podcast interview.
1: Yeah. And your laugh doesn't bother me, but my laugh bugs the crap out of me. I hate it.
0: Well, your laugh doesn't bother me either. So we should just keep (laughs) laughing.
1: All right. What else, what else stands out from uh, this last half of the podcast?
0: So let's talk about bro marketing because everyone's talking about bro marketing.
1: Yeah, I I have to admit, I hate this term. I think I said this in a clubhouse uh, room recently, but I think the term bro marketing does it a a really a disservice um, because I think it's really easy just to dismiss uh, what so-called bro marketers do as thinking of well, those are the guys that are leaning on the Lambos or they're at the rented condo or or whatever, um, and. You know, we skip over the fact that there are plenty of people who who do not wear that bro hat who do unethical things in their marketing. I've seen people who, uh, you know, call themselves feminist uh, copywriters or or sorry, feminist marketers. Who I've looked at some of the things that they do, and I'm like, huh, that doesn't seem all that ethical either. And and so I I think that that term itself is a really bad term, and maybe we should all be thinking about. Uh, You know, a better term that that really encompasses the ethical practices that we'd like to do or encourage our clients to do uh, in the world as opposed to the things that some of these unethical people, the bro marketers are doing.
0: So what would you call it? Instead of bro marketing, I,
1: I don't know. I mean, I actually really dislike the. I mean, you know, calling it ethical marketing or whatever, I think is okay, but I don't think that that really captures it either, um, because the unethical stuff, like the word ethical or unethical, it almost seems too nice. It doesn't feel dirty enough, and and on the flip side, bro marketing feels like it doesn't actually encapsulate the entire thing. So maybe we should have uh, have our listeners, you know, email us with some better ideas for what we should call that kind of marketing.
0: Shady. I just call it shady.
1: It is shady. Yeah, it is shady. It's the kind of stuff that you wouldn't put in front of your mom and uh, maybe that's the name for it.
0: (laughs) Okay. So um, something else that Sarah shared, we talked a lot about energy related to launches, which has come up in some other conversations we've had recently too. And so I thought that was a helpful part of the conversation just to have that reminder of, you don't have to launch a certain way. You you know It is important to manage your energy. Launches are intense, whether you're launching your own products or you're working with clients in the launch space. Uh, there is just the reality that it is very intense and taxing and can quickly burn you out. Um, so I know for, for us with the Copywriter Club, we've shifted away from doing big live launches, not to say that we don't do any. We still We still do some with the accelerator program, but we've really shifted to more of an evergreen model with our programs because the whole big launch model just has been, uh, stressful, tiring. And then it also doesn't quite make sense for any of our programs because we want to be able to add people to everything we offer, whether it's a mastermind or a membership throughout the entire year. So, um, I just think it's important to have that conversation around launching because, um, it really does lead to burnout. And that's that's a real struggle for many copywriters.
1: Yeah. And I know Sarah talked about, you know, a couple of the different ways that people launch and we'll talk about it in an upcoming podcast as well. But I'm really looking forward to seeing this industry evolve in and discover other ways to launch you know outside of the, the PLF or video formula or the webinar formula or uh, you know the, the things that we see all the time and start to see some innovation in the space. I don't know what that looks like. Obviously we'd like to innovate some of that as well. But I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how the launch space changes in the coming years, because uh, from what I can see, the older ways of doing it, and they're not that old, but they've just been done so many times for so many products that at least in the marketing space and in the copywriting space, they feel a little tired. And sometimes you know, they, uh, they don't go as well as you know maybe they uh, did years ago. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how this uh, whole space evolves.
0: Yeah, so maybe if you're listening and you you are testing new ways of launching and you're experimenting, you are thinking about it in an innovative way, um, reach out to us and let us know what you're learning and what you're doing so we can talk more about that. I did like what Sarah shared about creating creating, almost mirroring a similar experience in a launch that parallels what you'll offer in a program. So similar if you if you run any type of group where you have hot seats or coaching rather than running a webinar where you're teaching a lesson why don't you just host an event where you're coaching or hosting hot seats which again mer- mirrors and shows and demonstrates exactly what you're going to offer and so I think for our own clients and then for our own offers we can do a better job of having this like parallel play for our offers in our marketing that Better serves
2: us. Yeah,
1: I think that's a great idea. And you know, as I'm even thinking about the things that we do in our programs, you know, I'm wondering, you know, are there people who could do a launch entirely through direct mail, or you know, Ooh. maybe there, maybe there's a program that's that's suited for that. Uh, you know, or you know, if you're if you're only teaching, uh, you know, you're only bringing in guests, maybe there's some kind of a launch that you do around that. Um, you know, that may at first glance, that sort of feels like a summit or an event or something like that. But maybe there's some way to innovate there too. So yeah, I'm looking forward to, to uh, hopefully hearing from some of our listeners about the things that they're doing that are new and different.
0: Yes, I like that. My first reaction was like, no, Rob, we're not doing something new because <laughs> our, one of our mentors recently told us to start saying no to each other more often instead of saying yes and then trying to do a billion things. So let's just shut that down. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> we
1: won't we won't do anything new. We'll 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 do old and boring. Oh, perfect. So thanks to Sarah for joining us to talk about her business and list building and launching and boundaries and so much more. If you want to connect with Sarah or get on her list so that you can see what her welcome sequence looks like, go to Sarah And we should say Sarah spells her name without an H. So Uh, Sarah, V-A-R-T-A-N-I-A-N.com. And there you'll find more information about her services and her membership.
0: That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, and we hope that you have, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave a review of the show. And don't forget to get your ticket to the Copywriter Club, not in real life event, by visiting the copywriterclub.com/tccirl-1 or just click on, you know, click on all the links on our show notes page. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
1: Copywriters coming together to help the world write better copy and make more money. Kira and Raps Copywriters Club Can make you lots of money